CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, clearly, clearly, if you've been paying attention to uh, TV and radio today, you know we have a lot to talk about. Michael Cohen has been testifying in front of the House Oversight Committee since 10 o'clock this morning. He is continuing to testify at this hour. Uh, we're going to talk about what we've uh, uh, heard and seen uh, so far today. And also, we have a lot of state news that we want to get to as well. So let me immediately introduce the panel, Greg Bluestein, who uh, continues to be the hardest working man in show business. His byline is on virtually every political story uh, at the AJC. You are really busy. The legislature is starting to heat up. There's stuff happening in the governor's office. You've been reporting on busy time. It is. I spent my morning in the Senate, and then Governor Kemp just had a press conference, and I'm going back over to the Capitol after he, this. He, I, he, I didn't realize that. He had a short press conference talking about the the need uh, to continue to focus on the, the fact that uh, Georgia farmers still haven't gotten federal emer- emergency relief from Hurricane Michael. And there's some movement there. There's a standalone bill that was dropped by Johnny Isaacson and David. Purdue, David Purdue. Right? Trump is said to be supportive of it, but the big question is, will Senator Mitch McConnell, the, the leader of the, uh, the Senate, um, bring yeah. it to the floor? Don't mess with Georgia, Greg. They, they better <laughs> or understand Puerto Rico it. or Florida. Yeah, or, or all the other <laughs> states that are involved. Um, Patricia Murphy, if you're watching us on Facebook Live at GPB News, uh, she's sitting right across from uh, Greg Bluestein. Patricia Murphy, syndicated columnist. You see her columns in Roll Call, in uh, the Daily Beast, and now in newspapers around the country. Uh, you might be in a diner like my uncle in Denver and reading my column <laughs> and be like, wait, I think I know her. <laughs> and of course, Patricia has a long history on Capitol Hill, which is why it's especially good you're here today. You worked with uh, Sam Nunn. You worked with uh, Max uh, Cleland, uh, just two of the Georgia senators that you worked with. And you were on the Hill with people from other states. So other states, yes. <laughs> Thank Stacey Evans uh, is here, former state representative and uh, candidate for governor on the Democrat in the Democratic primary last year. How are you, Stacey? I am good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. And I think we're all especially glad that uh, Audrey Haynes, professor of political science at the University of Georgia and the head of the applied political science program at UGA, which prepares people to go out in the world professional of professional politics, and we're especially glad you're here, Audrey, because if people see in the wide shots the assortment (laughs) of cupcakes you have brought us, they'll understand why we're so happy to have you here. And after they listen for a while, they'll know why I brought them today, because I'm very tired. But could I do a shout-out for one of our applied politics students? Yes. Uh, Houston Gaines, who was in our, in our first cohort, dropped his first uh, piece of uh, legislation. We're losing day. your microphone for oh, a minute sorry, here. That's sorry. all right. Go ahead. Sorry, Houston. Um, Houston Gaines, who is in our first cohort of applied politics, won uh, his uh, state representative seat and dropped his uh, first piece of legislation what is the it? other day. Do you know what the bill is? Well, it was a great bill. It was a bipartisan bill. And the the part that pleased me the most was it was directing some um, support towards dealing with the opioid crisis. Okay. Um, Just so you know, we can, we can, those of you who are listening, uh, we we can hear you still, but for some reason your microphone is kind of good and bad, but we're going to keep going forward and we'll let you know if it's you know, get so bad that we have to shake. That's my luck. No, now you sound great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can share. um, I have to start by uh, making an observation. I, I, like many people, have watched since 10 o'clock this morning, since uh, Cohn began testifying. And I have to say, I'm not sure I've ever been more depressed (laughs) by, by a congressional hearing of any sort that I've watched. This is my personal evaluation. For one thing, if everything Michael Cohen or most of what Michael Cohen is saying about the president of the United States is true, it's depressing on that front to think that uh, we have a president who may be responsible or irresponsible to the extent that Michael Cohen says, perhaps criminal behavior, whatever. On the other hand, 
the fact that there seems to be, I'm going to start with you on this, Patricia, because you wrote a column about it for Roll Call. The fact that I'm not sure I see any effort in this committee to get to the truth, to the facts, it's all playing to the base. And I think that's more true of Republicans, but to an extent, it seems to me it's also true of the way the Democrats are dealing with it. What's your observation? Well, political hearings are as much to get to the truth as they are to portray your own truth, um, especially when you have a partisan committee like the Oversight Committee that is really quite polarized. Um, some of the other committees are less so. I would say the Oversight Committee is where you have a lot of kind of showboats and show dogs who go, get out there to sort of pronounce what they think and not ask the witnesses what really happened. Uh, there are also not as many lawyers on this committee as as on the Judiciary Committee, so they ask questions that maybe are not going to yield any kind of new information. Maybe it's just spinning off of what they heard on cable that morning. Um, but I think uh, I've been surprised by the Republicans' um, really unwavering defense of the president um, and their attacks on Michael Cohen in the face of some really egregious accusations against the president and rather going to uh, the t the uh, kind of the meat of those matters. It has been a lot more questions from Republicans or really accusations against Michael Cohen as a liar, as uh, somebody who's perjured himself, lied on documents. They've talked a lot more about Michael Cohen than about the president. I think they could have used this opportunity better to defend him um, than they have so far. I, I want to um, get everybody into this conversation, but but just to uh, uh, make uh, Patricia's point, uh, Jody Heiss uh, is on uh, this uh, committee, and uh, we can listen to just a little bit of uh, what happened when he had his first opportunity to question Michael Cohen, and it's fairly representative of the way Republicans have been handling whole, this whole thing. Let's listen. Mr. Cohen, you claim that you've lied, but you're not a liar. Just to set the record straight, if you lied, you are a liar. You also said a moment ago that the facts are inaccurate. If they are facts, they are accurate, and that would make you inaccurate. Uh, Tom Steyer, um, regarding him or any of his representatives, uh, anyone associated with him, is, are the, is he or any of them paying Lanny Davis to represent you? Not that I'm aware of. Who is paying Lanny Davis? At the present moment, no one. Uh, so he's doing all this work for nothing? Yes, sir. Okay. And I hope so. I find the connecting of the dots here with with Mr. Davis uh, and you and, frankly, the chairman and perhaps others to be rather stunning that there is a an agenda for all this uh, happening here today. And I, I, I believe, frankly, that that's to bring uh, the president down, to impugn the president. But here we are today. Our first big hearing with, as you and we all know, a convicted liar lying to Congress, a criminal. And I, I believe this witness is totally incompatible uh, with the stated goal of having to seek the truth in this hearing. Greg, it's interesting. In her column, uh, Patricia's column, which we, by the way, have posted a link to on all of our social media platforms, um, she makes the initial point, and I'm sorry for using your words, but just to broaden the, the uh, <laughs> uh, people, uh, she makes the point that it's that uh, ahead of the hearings, that Democrats are the ones that should be cautious about how they make use of people like a Michael Cohen. Mm -hmm. You call him the headline of your column in and of itself. I don't have it in front of me right now, but I'll bet you know it. Uh, the perils of investigating a complete buffoon. A complete buffoon. <laughs> so I the, might have been talking about the president also. It's up to you to judge. <laughs> okay. But she does point out in this column, Greg, that there are perils for the Democrats. And this is one of the things Republicans have been using in the hearing today, saying Elijah Cummings, the Democratic chairman of the committee, now the Democrats are in control of the House, have been saying, this is the first thing you want to do in the Oversight Committee, is bring a convicted felon here to testify. And... Got to say, that's a compelling question, but Republicans have not handled themselves well today. Well, Republicans are doing what any I think any attorney would do if they had a, a, a witness like this in court, which is trying to impeach his credibility. Um, he has already pleaded guilty to lying to Congress. And what we heard from Representative Heiss was not even the sort of the, 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 the strongest words. Yeah. Jim J Jordan of Ohio, the ranking Republican, called, him a, called Cohen a fraudster, cheat, convicted felon, and two months a federal inmate. So they're, they're trying to undermine any sort of credibility he, he has. And he's admitted to the fact that he, that he lied to Congress earlier, that he, that he lied 
on behalf of President Trump, but he's saying what he's saying now is true. Audrey? Well, I was going to say, one of the uh, most uh, interesting moments was there are some exchanges. I actually expected more between the members of the committees, and they, they actually did sort of hold themselves back. Um, but uh, after one very intense drilling down of, you know, Cohen and why he's here and uh, sort of casting aspersions on the Democrats, there was a response that said, well, remember, last year we wanted to bring in a host of people, and you wouldn't let us. And when the Republicans were in the majority. Yes, and this is indicative of how important elections are. As a political scientist here, I would say elections really matter, because had the midterm outcome been different, we wouldn't probably be hearing from Michael Cohen today. Stacy, I wonder if uh, there are Republicans, if not in the House, where they seem to, for the most part, have coalesced around President Trump, Nevertheless, there are some Republicans in the House and certainly in the Senate who are not as conservative as the Republicans on this committee, which by, you know, we have Jim Jordan, Mark Meadow, who are leading the charge against Michael Cohn, two of the leaders of the Freedom Caucus, the most conservative Republicans uh, on the House side. And I can't help but wonder if there are some Republicans out there watching them and saying, tone it down, guys, you're not doing us any good here. Oh, I'm sure there are. And I hope that there are Democrats on the other side also not reveling in what's going on, because I think this whole this whole thing, I'm going to call it a show because that's essentially what it's been so far. I've been listening to it. We were talking before the show, Audrey and I, that probably nobody's listening to us right now because they're listening to the Cohen Of course here. they are. But they'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll download the podcast and they'll watch it later, I'm sure. But I've, I found this whole thing very frustrating, the hypocrisy of all of it, the hypocrisy of the Republicans pointing out that he had um, – not paid taxes or he had uh, not completely divulged financial information that he had lied. These are all things that we know the president is doing, yet they stand by his side. And then on the Democratic side, you know that if a witness like Cohen was coming in at the request of a Republican, we would be screaming, he's a convicted felon. You can't believe anything he said. And, and I just wish everybody would pause and think, how would I respond if this person was on the other side? And that never happens. And I we're think, not getting to the truth. Thank you. Because, Patricia, that's exactly why, why this depresses me. I was trying to think back to Watergate because I was already an adult when the Watergate hearings unfolded. And I'm trying to think about the day that John Dean testified. And it was John Dean, of course, who really turned the tide against President Nixon uh, in the Watergate hearings. And I was trying to recall, it strikes me that Sam Irvin, who led the investigation of the president, um, set a tone in those hearings that actually, in which the truth and facts mattered and had an impact on the committee. I don't see anything that's happening today where getting to the truth is what's at stake here, or or more important, where anybody's going to change their mind about anything as they watch this unfold. And I find that depressing. Well, I'm sorry. I <laughs> don't want you to be depressed. Um, but I think uh, what Democrats are trying to do is to, uh, frankly, build a case toward impeachment. And, and, and impeachment is not a legal exercise. It's a political exercise. But you even say in that column I talked about, what is their ultimate exactly. goal Exactly. And I think... Uh, I think that is the danger and the challenge for Democrats. First of all, there are so many Democrats with a lot of different opinions about what should happen with the president and the administration. And early on in the hearing, um, we heard from Democrats talking about, is this possibly an impeachable offense, uh, what the president is being accused of? Um, and so there has to be a clear strategy from Democrats that I don't think they have right now. I don't think that Nancy Pelosi is particularly interested in pursuing impeachment right now. But you have to make sure that your party maintains a veneer of object of objectivity when evaluating what the president is accused of doing. Um, and so I think that it, hearings like this, when they start to seem so partisan, um, really get you further away from that goal. And it'll be interesting. I, there were some freshmen that were about to start asking questions of Michael Cohen uh, who were starting to take very different tacks than the older or more seasoned, I guess, uh, members of the committee. Uh, some freshman Democrats from purple districts uh, who also are attorneys and who are really trying to get uh, to some facts based answers. And I think as this hearing goes on, it'll be interesting to see if we have any sort anything that's a little bit different. And that's what I hope. I, 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 from what I saw, it was 
where are the questions that are nailing down some facts where you could yes. actually yeah. point to later? And I would say the one exception that I saw was Katie Hill, Representative Katie Hill. I don't know where she's from. I don't know anything about her. I don't really even know her partisanship. I assume she's a Democrat. But yeah. she was, to me, the only one she's I a, heard she that is a, yeah, She's from questions. California. Okay. Mm-hmm. She is a freshman. And yes, you, she's an example of what yes. Patricia was talking about. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm from a purple district. I really want to get to the truth here. Go ahead. Stacey. It was refreshing. I mean, that, that's it. And so kudos to her. I don't know her, but I, I, was, I was really, it was refreshing to hear her after all the other noise. And a lot of those new waves of, of, of incoming Democratic lawmakers um, are more moderate. You know, a lot of attention goes to the progressive wing of the party. Um, But there are a lot of moderates who won by not talking about impeachment, by not talking about um, trying to oust President Trump from office before 2020, but by talking about democratic principles they would they would follow. And I think you're seeing those on you. You will see those on display over the next couple hours with those questions. Um, The headline, of course, this morning, uh, Audrey, we we learned this before the hearing even began because uh, Cohen's testimony his opening statement was released to the media, and the headline statement was, I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He's a racist. He's a con man. He's a cheat. He was a presidential candidate who knew that Roger Stone was talking with Julian Assange about a WikiLeak drop of DNC emails. It's a pretty uh, startling indictment of the president of the United States, and um, it, it, again— I don't think anyone in this state who is a pro-Trump person is going to change for a second how, they, how much they like Donald Trump. And I'm not sure any Democrats are going to—I uh, 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 do think Democrats are going to have their feelings confirmed. So how does that statement resonate in a state like this? Does it change any minds? It may. So um, there's always the people who are independents. And we've seen them shifting over time. That Suburban the, women? Yeah, their yeah. support for Trump has, um, you know, somewhat chipped away. But there are um, Republicans, and we forget them, that voted in the primary for someone like a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio, and they had no other choice, and they had very um, strong uh negative feelings towards uh, Hillary Clinton and Clintons in general. So for them in particular, uh, if they're given uh, an opportunity to vote for someone they may have more respect for, because often when you converse with them, they'll talk about, I don't like President Trump, but I think he's doing good things. In fact, Michael Cohen said that in the hearing today. There are lots of places where when asked a question, when he was pushed by Democrats in a particular direction, he said, no, I. what happened after he won? They started trying to figure out what to do in Washington. Would he do this? No, I don't think he would. So, I mean, he did not, um, he, he did not go in the direction of, of trying to put nails in the coffin. It did seem that he was trying his best to be very accurate and make his statement hard-hitting as it was, but without going in places where he could not give uh, justification. Yeah, in terms of anything that new that's come out, what I've been struck by is that what we're hearing, I think Democrats already believe all of this about President yeah. Trump anyway. Uh, yeah. Good point. And Republicans have processed this information and don't care about it or, or else think it is sort of a, the same scurrilous accusation that's been coming again and again and again. Um, I think what when you said you were a little depressed, one thing that I'm very concerned about, uh, not to change the subject, but that is that the president is in Vietnam currently meeting with the head of North Korea. Um, there are a lot of reports right now about a lot of different things going around on around the world. Tensions with India and Pakistan have escalated to the point that the State Department put out a statement today. There are a lot of very, very hugely important things going on and things that the president is deeply involved in, especially with North Korea, that he may declare an end to the Korean War at some point That's, in this meeting. That, I think, and none of that is getting attention. Uh, Stacey, it's very strange. I, I think, but, but there's another aspect to that that I think we should explore a little. Uh, uh, Stacy. here's here's the president uh, with Kim Jong-un. We're going to see tom- their big meeting, their big summit meeting to- uh, overnight tonight, tomorrow. And there's no question that the White House and Trump are paying close attention to Michael Cohen. And there's no question as they listen to Michael Cohen that they're um, foolish enough not to understand this does, that these blows can do damage So I think one of the questions that'll be interesting to watch is how far is the president willing to go with Kim Jong-un to come back from from Hanoi 
with some exciting news to announce that he thinks will neutralize what the Cohen hearing is uh, doing to him today. There's no doubt his mind has to be going there. And, and I would be surprised if he doesn't come back with a big announcement, whether it actually comes to fruition or not would remain to be seen. But he's done that before. He's sort of made a big announcement about something that's going to happen that ends up not happening because it distracts the media and everyone for a few days so that they can forget about Michael Cohen. And what concessions he might be willing to make to, to get that big splash. All right. Uh, I'll tell you what we'll do. Um, the hearings are continuing. Uh, by the way, we've already got people saying on our Twitter and our Facebook Live account, yeah, we're listening to you. Okay. So, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, let's get a break in. And when we come back, there's a lot of state news that we want to talk about as well. So this is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Over the past five years, police in Chicago have responded to almost 3,000 murders. That trauma takes a toll. There's an officer sitting there in the squad car right now, dreading going out on the street, just beside him or herself, wondering, where the hell do I turn? Some officers are dying by suicide. Their stories, plus the latest on President Trump's meeting with Kim Jong-un, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 4 till 7 today on GPB. Greg Bluestein, uh, we uh, look at the legislature now. Things are starting to really heat up down there. Uh, Ed Setzler, who, of course, is a Republican uh, member of the House from uh, up in Ackworth, has introduced a bill that's um, called, they're calling it colloquially the heartbeat bill. It's not much different, really, in most ways from uh, a, 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 something that we've seen across the country, which is the personhood uh, measures that have been promoted in other states. He wants to ban abortion for any woman who is six weeks uh, pregnant or beyond, which most experts say essentially makes abortion all but illegal in Georgia. Um, it's been a while since we've seen anything quite that dramatic introduced on abortion. Yeah, in we used to see um, legislation introduced by the late Bobby Franklin. Uh, yeah. It was always HB one. It was always the first legislation yep. assigned every year um, that would uh, that would that would effectively restrict or, or even outlaw abortion. And this would this would do. This would um, that would uh, outlaw abortions once a doctor can detect a heartbeat a heartbeat in the womb, um, and it's another sign of the conservative wing of the Republican Party uh, who who feels like they that Brian Kemp owes them something. Because remember, Brian Kemp promised shortly after Mississippi signed what was then the strictest abortion limits in the nation, he promised to outdo Mississippi. And so um, if you ask Ed Setzler, if you ask other Republican supporters of this legislation, they say they're going to test Brian Kemp's promise. Um, Stacey, uh, I'm trying to remember, during your tenure in the legislature, did you all have to beat back any abortion restriction at legislation that looked like it really had the potential to get somewhere? Uh, it was funny when you said that. it's been a while since we've had this yeah. kind of legislation. I can tell you exactly when we had the last big piece, and that was the 20 weeks bill, the bill that banned abortion at 20 weeks. And that's very vivid to me because I was pregnant with my first child mm -hmm. during that session and um, wanted to speak out against the bill and about how it was closing the doors to women who were um, who were facing fetal anomalies and, and other problems, uh, perhaps a fetus that wouldn't live outside a hospital stay of somebody who was going to give birth. And I was pregnant at the time, so I was going through and I knew what 20 weeks meant and I knew things you find out and some things you find out before 20 weeks and some things you don't. And I wanted to speak against this bill, but I was scheduled for an inducement the day that the bill was heard on the oh. floor. So what we did was I recorded a video statement literally as I was leaving the Capitol to go get induced. And to Speaker Ralston's credit and the Republicans, they did let that play on the House floor. Of course, the bill passed um, and, and there's been court fights about that bill since. But here I am. And for the listeners that don't know, I'm expecting my second child. So here I am pregnant again, not in the legislature, <laughs> but here's another bill. And, and it's really disgusting because you've got um, a bill that says we're not going to give a woman and her family and her doctor a, a right to make these decisions after six weeks, essentially, because that's when you can 
detect a heartbeat. And a lot of women don't even realize that they're pregnant at six weeks. So you are essentially cutting off any access um, for these women. Audrey, and, it's, and it's disgusting. Oh, I'm sorry. Audrey, it is interesting that, uh, the, the, that it has been Republican leaders in the more recent General Assembly sessions. And back in the day, it was always Tom Murphy, the Democratic speaker for 29 years, who put a halt to most of the uh, abortion restriction language uh, that was introduced in uh, the House. Uh, I don't know what the climate is down there uh, right now. Well, and I would say that one of the things that I pay attention to is the climate overall. So, you know, abortion is a difficult um, issue. If you look at how public opinion is spread, it's not super strong in any category. In fact, the numbers are uh, people who want it legal in all cases, 25 percent, people who want it illegal in all cases, 15 percent. The rest are a mixture of people who believe if a woman is raped, she should have the choice to have an abortion. If there is a question of it being between the life of the, the, the fetus and the mother, that is a, a question the family needs to address, not the government. So bringing out um, a piece of legislation like this um, is, is tricky, and it's likely because of that distribution of public opinion, I'm not certain that it will pass. Patricia, uh, the uh, Georgia Right to Life, Ricardo Davis says, the bill is, quote, a hopeful step toward the ultimate goal of adopting a personhood mm -hmm. amendment, which essentially says there from the time of fertilization, of fertilization mm -hmm. a, a, a fetus is a person and therefore there cannot be. It's murder, essentially. Though That, by the way, has been... Uh, rejected by any court that's had to look at it so far, I believe. Yes, and I think that also uh, a personhood um, amendment or bill has been talked about in the Georgia legislature yeah. before, and uh, so many doctors came out, so many OBGYNs came in and said, what are you thinking? Um, because it would have a lot of, uh, they said, unintended consequences, even for people going through IVF. Um, so this tends to be an area of law where the people with the strongest opinions have the least information. And so I think um, something like this, uh, a six-week bill, a heartbeat bill has been struck down legally in other states. And so it's something that I think, again, I also don't know the, uh, the chances of it passing here, but I think the chances of there being a court challenge are excellent. Yeah. Stacey Fox at Planned Parenthood Southeast has already said, if they pass this, we're going to court right away. Yeah, I don't know that this bill will be the bill that gets a lot of traction. But if you look at it the other way, Brian Kemp made promises on abortion, yep. on gun expansions, on illegal immigration, on religious liberty, on a range of social issues. And if this session ends without him making any headway on any of those, then he'll hear it from his own Republican base that wanted him to live up to those promises and voted for him over better known and better funded opponents like Casey Cagle um, because they believed that he would be the... So what does he have to do? Pick his poison? He, uh, I mean, poison to... Well, maybe you know you, what I'm suggesting. Yeah, but to some of his supporters... Well, I, you know? that was just yeah. a, a yeah, yeah. term. Not, not. No, I get it. But, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might be, it might end up being illegal immigration. It might be something. But if he ends this session... Um, you know, let's say taking a step toward Medicaid expansion uh, yeah. with, with his kind of his new view on casinos. Um, you could say old view, but his his view on casinos um, and, and, and the other things that the legislature might end up the session with while not taking aggressive stances on social issues, then his base might be clamoring well, for change. And by the way, before you start tweeting or whatever, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. These are issues that he promised his base that are harder than once you're governing to deal with than mm -hmm. when you're running. So that's what I mean. Pick your poison, yep. which is the one that he thinks he can uh, appease the base with and not face too much pushback from other Georgians. And remember also the rural broadband issue is still out there. Yeah. And we now don't have any, now that the Netflix, the so-called Netflix tax part of the Netflix tax has been taken out, and that means that there's not going to be a, a tax on, a new tax on, on wireless streaming. Yeah. There's no funding mechanism right now to expand broadband in rural areas, which is another big part of his, his campaign. Stacey? Well, it would it would be poison. It would be poison to Republicans in 2020. Um, and I would I would push back and say, be brave, Governor Kemp. <laughs> Stand strong against this kind of legislation that's not going to do your party any good um, in, in the long run. It's going to hurt suburban Republicans. It's going to hurt Senator Perdue in his reelection. And and for what? It, for a bill that's going to if it's this abortion bill, it's a bill that's going to get struck down in court anyway. 
I, w- I would say, though, uh, for uh, anybody looking to pass this kind of legislation, now is really the time to strike because you do have a new governor who needs mm. to prove something. You also have a Trump White House and a Trump Justice Department very eager to support these kind this kinds of legislation and Donald Trump. Um, as uh, one of the least likely, but, you know, a very strong uh, supporter of the pro-life movement. And well, has been v- totally unambiguous. So if you're in Georgia, it's looking, it might be trending a little purple. Now's the time to get these bills passed. As we discussed on yesterday's show, Audrey, last, late last Friday, HHS did in fact release a Trump administration rule in terms of federal funding to family planning agencies that also refer women for abortion services, uh, the the government is going to cut out the federal funds that have been used to help poor women get access to services, and they're talking Planned Parenthood, uh, as long as those agencies also refer out to for abortion services. So Patricia's quite right. Mm -hmm. The moment is is right to strike if you're going to do it, I guess. Well, and those Trump allies who he is relying on now, I mean, that is a very important part of their uh, selling points to their voters. So the expectation is he'll keep doing that because the establishment in the middle of the road, Republicans don't seem to be falling in his way. Ironically, it is the um, the Christian conservatives, the hardcore conservatives that are 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 the ones who are supporting <clears throat> him, regardless. And you know, including um, people like Representative Heiss, who are Baptist preachers. So, so Stacy, the. Um the interesting thing here, it, it, let's shift this to strictly political ground for, for just a moment. Uh, it's already been referred to. Republicans, uh, David Ralston, told the AJC, it might have been an interview with you. Back when he talked to us. Yeah, back when he was talking to you, that the uh, that Republicans had to keep in mind they were losing the, the northern suburbs, largely because women were uh, uh, turning away from the Republican Party. Make I, I would assume that the data would suggest that passing a tougher abortion laws does not help Republicans with women voters in Georgia. Not at all. And, and the introduction of it doesn't help because it's now a talking point, and that's something that people are going to say. These, these, this is what they're doing. And if they, if they do, if the Republicans do take the attitude that it's slipping away, we're becoming a purple state, we better get it while we can get it, it's going to be their last hurrah. It's going to be the end. I remember last year the governor's office was so freaked out at even the mere introduction of a religious liberty bill, yeah. even if it, even if we knew it was going to go nowhere. The speaker had spoken out against it. The governor had already vetoed a similar version of it. But I remember Chris Riley said very publicly that even if it gets introduced, it casts a cloud over Georgia's attempt to recruit Amazon and other big name companies. And, and that, that could be said, the same thing could be said for any of these uh, social All right. So ironically, Greg, uh, at the same time, uh, Setzler introduces that bill, which may or may not go anywhere and which will certainly get a challenge in court if it does. Uh, you, you, you're, you're the political insider blog put up a really interesting uh piece the other day about the fact that now that we have more women in the General Assembly, there were like 72 women now in the General Assembly, 236 total, 72 are women, uh, mostly Democrats. Uh, Suddenly we see all these women-oriented bills. What a surprise coming forward. And we had very funny quotes from male lawmakers saying, I never knew that, you know, the tampon tax was such a big issue because it's not it's not right on their minds. And as you know, as as, is understandable, but um, it shows the 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 changing nature of of the Georgia General Assembly. And many of them are Democrats. Audrey. So I was going to say that that just shores up all the research that political science does, because they talk about the fact that. Women, when they get into the legislature, they're more likely to introduce uh, legislation that helps women. They also are better at bringing funding back to their districts. Um, they get a lot of things done. They pass more bills in general. So, and part of that is uh, there's a good reason. Uh, it's very difficult to run and win as a woman. There, there are still roadblocks to it. So most of the women who run and get into the state legislature or the U.S. Um, Congress are highly skilled, usually um, higher quality candidates. So they generally tend to be more effective than their male counterparts who wake up every morning, all of them looking in the mirror and going, I'd be a great congressman, right? <laughs> president. <laughs> yeah. Or Senator. president, yes, or senator. And yet, and yet it appears uh, that Renee Unterman, 
who has been a, a, a woman in the legislature for a long time now uh, in the Senate, uh, appears to be heading over to a race in the seventh district for Congress because she feels as if she has been pushed out by the new Senate leadership, including the lieutenant governor from a really significant leadership post. So this, this thing cuts both ways. Uh, yes, it sure does. Uh, <laughs> I would say also, to make a broad generalization, women uh, need to really make good use of their time. And if she feels like she's not getting going to be able yeah. to make good use of her time um, in the legislature, she might have uh, more success in the House. Stacey, what was it like for you? Well, it was interesting. When I read the story that that, that was in the AGC on, on the women, and there was a quote from Jen uh, Jordan that I could relate with so much. She said that a man had brought her into his office and said, you know, you're smart. You can do well here, but you got to smile more and uh, you should really bring your kids on the floor more so that you'll be seen as softer. And I was thinking how many times people had said, you know, you should you should smile more. Mm-hmm. And um, when I, I remember when I was pregnant, uh, there were a lot of male older legislators uh, who will rena- remain nameless, who I felt like understood me for the first time ever because I was now playing a role that they understood women to have, which was being a mother. And before that, I wasn't someone perhaps that they could relate to. Um, I, I And I went through all the things that, that a lot of other women go through, being mistaken for uh, not hopefully not pages, but interns. and Patricia, what was it like on the Hill? You were working on the Hill in a somewhat earlier time period. What was it like for a young woman on the Hill? Uh, I, um, coming out of one Senate office, uh, had a chance to go down and work in the Georgia State Legislature or work in the U.S. Capitol. And the U.S. Capitol was understood at that time even to be uh, far more progressive uh, than the Georgia Legislature, Mm -hmm. that uh, if you were going to work in the Georgia Legislature as a staffer, you better have thick skin and long skirts, to be honest with you. I was there during a bunch of that, and I remember what an inhospitable climate it was for young women in the Georgia legislature. It was brutal. And I do think uh, another quote uh, from Jim Jordan, uh, she said she didn't uh, intend to come out with a number of bills having to do with sort of leveling the playing field just for the work environment for women. She said, but I just couldn't believe the misogyny that I faced when I walked through the doors. And so there are things I think most women don't want to walk through the doors and sort of immediately be the squeak of wheel, be like, change this, change that, you know, but you have to have a basic level of equality and of uh, an appropriate work environment for women who have different needs than men do in some cases, especially when they're pregnant or nursing. So it's just a reality she, I think she was surprised by, but other people uh, have known about for a long time. And and a side note on her, she has become a force into her own down yeah. at the Capitol. Yeah. I mean, she won a very competitive district in 2017, a special election. And um, just yesterday, watching her tangle with um, Blake Tillery, the senator who was uh, sponsoring the Medicaid waiver bill, uh, it was a prolonged back and forth where he, you know, he had to prepare for. Her. You could see him sort of the, the gears turning as he was trying to make sure that she she wasn't catching him in some sort of trap there, um, talking about the uh, the ins and outs of that legislation. When Jeff Duncan was practicing for his role as lieutenant governor, he had an actor play out Jen Jordan's role <laughs> just to make sure, just because they're so worried about... Uh, my senator. Some, She's my senator. Some, I'm so <laughs> proud of her. This is great. Uh, while we're speaking about women, and before we take a break, women who are active under the Gold Dome, uh, the governor's wife, Marty Kemp, uh, uh, Audrey, has uh, introduced the first issue that she wants to take on as first lady of the state, and it happens to coincide with a bill that's now been dropped, I think, in the Senate uh, is that right, mm-hmm. Greg? Senate. Uh, Marty Kemp wants to uh, uh, start a commission that w- I think it's got the Georgians for Refugee Action, Compassion, and Education, the Grace Commission, uh, and it's all about looking at sex trafficking, which we know has been a real issue in Atlanta, and there's now a piece of legislation to go with that commission that she's empowering, which will uh, punish uh, those who are profiting in any way from sex activity like that. Yeah, I've got that right? You got that. Okay. Well, that is that is absolutely a great thing to hear, and um, that would meet my expectation of sort of the, uh, the things that she might tackle. I would note that I've talked to students for a long time. University of Georgia students have often gone up to um, – the Capitol to talk about human trafficking. I used to advise a group um, that uh, brought um, more knowledge about it. And a few years ago, they told me they went up to the Capitol and people ran away from them and would not talk to them, particularly some of those um, more conservative uh, male representatives. And 
uh, they have been working very hard. So it is very good to see a response like this. Right. Let me, let's get our final break of the show out of the way because we still have a lot we want to talk about, but let's clear the playing field so we can do that when we come back on Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, Mary Pfeiffer. She wrote the bestseller Reviving Ophelia about the pressures and anxieties faced by teenage girls. She wrote about adults taking care of their aging parents in the book Another Country. Her new book, Women Rowing North, is about women who, like her, are transitioning into older age. She's a clinical psychologist. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB. Michael Cohen is going to prison for financial crimes and for lying to Congress. I will spend the rest of my life to fix the mistake that I made. But before he goes, he's testifying before a House committee about his business with the president. It's said that I should take responsibility for his dirty deeds. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Join me for live special coverage of the hearing from NPR News. Follow the hearing live today on gpbnews.org. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Wine, uh, Patricia Murphy. You just heard Patricia Murphy. Uh, she's with us. Uh, so is Stacey Evans, Audrey Haynes, and Greg Bluestein. Uh, Greg, we talked a little while ago about things that the governor was opposed to on the campaign trail, and now he's at least pulling back a little and saying, let's see how things unfold. Casino gambling is uh, one of them. He's adamantly opposed to it, and I, we have no reason to think he's not still adamantly opposed to it, but he's opened the door for the pro-gambling forces to come in with some new ideas about how to pass something they haven't been able to do for a number of sessions, and that's at least beginning the, the conversation mm -hmm. on really having casinos in Georgia. Yeah, Governor Kemp basically says he will not actively oppose the constitutional amendment um, that would let voters decide on their own whether or not to allow legalized gambling to help this bolster the Hope Scholarship. And this is something that, this is the attack that Deal took too late in his second term. But at first, Deal too was saying he would, he was going to fight it. He was going to make sure that gambling did not pass. And then, you know, about 2000, I think it was 17, kind of switched, to, changed his mind about that. Uh, it didn't gain traction after that. It was looked as as dead on arrival here until uh, earlier this week. I mean, even even the gambling advocates weren't really buoyant about it. But um, they, I don't know what it was, but Kemp changed his mind and said, um, or, or 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 at least nuanced his his tone about it and said instead of. He still opposes it, but he, he recognizes that voters will have the ultimate say. Taking a position much like Nathan Deal did with Sunday liquor sales, mm -hmm. Stacey, right? Saying, you know what, I don't like the idea of selling liquor on Sunday, but shouldn't local jurisdictions be able to decide for themselves on that? And in a way, he's taken a page from that book saying, look, if the voters of Georgia want to vote to have uh, gambling here. But the other change that now the pro-gambling forces are making is that they're, they're simply saying, let's see if Georgians want this. Then we can come back and talk about what it would mean to have casinos and what rules we'd establish. Am right. I right? Right. And I think it's smart of Governor Kemp. I mean, not every fight has to be his. Let the legislature duke this one out and let the chips fall where they may, pun intended. Um, <laughs> but uh, what what the pro-gambling uh, forces need to make sure that they do in this general bill that they're trying to pass is they are going to need to say where this money is going to go because you can't expect this to pass without the people of Georgia knowing where the money is going to go. And if you think back to the Georgia lottery, we didn't just pass a lottery. People didn't just approve a lottery. They approved the lottery as a means for education funding. And so if, if we don't put that, what are we going to do with the money and, in the bill? I don't think that a constitutional amendment is going to pass. That is what Kemp's folks are saying. Yeah. He would, he would if he's going to go along with it at all, it would only be if the money were earmarked for hope. What's interesting about what when you mentioned Zell Miller, Patricia, is when Miller wanted to pass lottery, he, he did something even more than just say lottery funds will go for education because he'd seen the Florida experience with that. Florida launched a lottery with money for education, but it went into the general education pot, which meant that legislators had an excuse to reduce their annual funding out of the budget for education. So Miller was even smarter. 
He earmarked that money specifically for three categories separate from the budget. Very interesting approach. Uh, well, very smart approach. Yeah. If, you know, any... Uh, Anybody under a capital loves to spend money their own special way, so it's nice to put uh, to put guardrails on that. Um, but I do think that the attempt or the suggestion to connect casino gambling, which is still seen as very controversial, especially among a lot of conservative Republicans, and connect that to hope is super smart because the lottery was so controversial until it was connected to the Hope Scholarship. And then the Hope Scholarship has been so popular and so effective in the years since. I could I can certainly easily see people who would be otherwise opposed to, uh, to gambling and to casino gambling be really favorable to this if it was connected to hope, which has been trimmed back quite a lot in yeah. the last year years and I think even they're saying that if it was put to put to a vote it would be specifically connected in the actual question would you be supportive of this mm-hmm. if it sent if the money all went to hope uh, Greg I'm I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to Brandon Beach has been promoting of course the establishment of horse racing again in Georgia is that all part of this or is that a separate measure entirely that's separate and that measure okay. actually passed the Senate uh, Senate committee okay so that that's moving forward but what, what you're seeing overall is gambling advocates taking a much different tack than, yeah. than the past years. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, they came out with very specific plans. There's going to be a casino in Savannah, one in near the airport, right. one in North Georgia. This year, they're saying, you know what, that's for later. What they're going to do first is just try to get this question passed. And if it gets passed in 2020, then they'll figure out the details. Audrey, how's that going to play out in Athens? Well, it'll be interesting because one of the dimensions of the potential payoff, uh, that, and I'm thinking of this as like the, the, the cookies there, spreading out to their potential supporters is uh, some of the money would go to new needs-based scholarships instead of just the uh, new Hope Scholarship. And there's been a real drive across the university and across the state to promote um, more students who meet qualifications but have real need based on that. So, you know, for some people, that will be a selling point. It just depends. All right. Well, watch how it goes forward. Greg, uh, yesterday, the state senate passed the uh, governor's Patients First Act, the first step in getting it through the legislature. It's a broad and somewhat undefined uh, measure. It essentially says, yeah, Governor Kemp gets to decide. (laughs) It gives him huge power, broad powers, wide latitude to, to craft these waivers. One would be towards basically stabilizing insurance premiums. The other could be towards a limited expansion of Medicaid. Uh, and you saw a strict party line vote where um, all the Republicans, many of them had signed on to the bill, so it was no surprise, voted for it. And Democrats uh, in a block voted against it, saying they wanted no- nothing short of all-out Medicaid expansion. Okay, so Stacey, there's no reason to think it won't also pass in the House, given it's controlled by Republicans. But it, but I would think in the House, it is going to face some stiffer uh, opposition from Democrats who are a little worried that uh, the governor shouldn't have as much power as this uh, legislation gives him to shape health care policy for the state. I suspect it'll have the same fate it had in the Senate. It'll be a party line vote. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting when there's fear that a Democrat might become governor uh, which happened a couple of years back uh, when Jason Carter was running against Nathan Deal. And, of course, the legislature rushed to pass a bill that said, no, the governor can't decide what to do with Medicaid expansion. Yeah. we got to let it be with the legislature. And now that they feel confident, I guess, at least for the next little bit, that they're going to have a Republican governor now, suddenly it's okay for the governor to make all these decisions. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, you can't fault uh, Governor Kemp and the Republicans for doing something. I'm glad they're doing something. Um it doesn't go far enough, in my opinion, but it's going to be an, it's, it's an interesting it's going to be an interesting political issue for Democrats to talk about on the campaign trail. If this does get implemented and it does start helping and it does start chipping away at the uninsured rates, which we have to hope that it does. Right. If that happens, then all the Democrats have to explain why they voted against it. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair point. And, you know, the other thing, Patricia, is the governor's people have been very They've done a good job, an effective job rounding up various non, particularly nonprofit health organizations like Grady Hospital Mm -hmm. uh, in getting their support. And of course, the question is, why wouldn't those organizations be supportive at this point? It gives them a seat at the table to help craft the policy. There's really no downside for the governor on this right now. 
Uh, no, not right now, especially because this has been so far removed from the concept of Obamacare and expanding Obamacare. You know, it was really just the name that it was running under. That was a huge problem for Republicans in some ways. And there is a legitimate problem um, around the state uh, at Grady with rural hospitals and access to rural health care um, that has got to be dealt with. So I actually do think um, it's an it's an important step forward. And I think it's a very smart step forward. And it's just something that anybody who's a reasonable, responsible leader of a state has got to move forward on. And um, and Grady needs those funds, and they're going to do anything they can to help the governor craft something to do that. And it's an expansion of his powers, as, as, as Stacey was mentioning earlier. This was taken away from him in 2014, right near the ice storm. I still remember when Jason Carter and Nathan Deal were neck and neck in polls and Republicans who were worried right, but, curtailed but, that. I'm sorry, but Stacey, I just thought of something Stacey mm-hmm. said that's important here. Uh, uh, a lot of what you say is important, but, <laughs> well, but this led me to another question. Uh, so right now, the Abrams uh, organization, Fair Fight Action, has got TV commercials up criticizing uh, – Another issue mm-hmm. that the governor is very involved with, and that's uh, election machinery, how we vote. Um, they haven't spoken out in any way similar to that about the Medicaid plan. Stacey Abrams, in fact, has said at least he's making the right move. So th- I think th- the reason I thought about it with, with Stacey mm-hmm. Evans is it suggests that Democrats recognize they better be careful about how far they go in criticizing this. It could end up being a good thing. Well, Republicans want this off the table for 2020. Right? Yeah. They, they want to be able to show that tens of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of additional people were covered through some sort of plan. Democrats will still say you could have covered more. Which, which is true if, if, if you know, if there's full-on Medicaid expansion. But, but you know, Democrat, the, everyone saw the, the close results in the suburbs, and everyone knows that the next ring of the suburbs will be even more in play. All those lawmakers that barely held onto their seats in the sort of outer suburbs are going to be the, have targets around their, their, on their backs this next cycle. All right. Um, getting to be exciting times downtown. Crossover day is a week from tomorrow. You got it. Crossover day being the day Stacey Evans well aware of that <laughs> after which bills can live or die. The last day that a bill can go from one body to the other for the most part uh, uh, and still be alive for the session. So we're going uh, to in the uh, political rewinds uh, coming up in the next week talk a lot about legislative activity. Um, real quick. Why did you bring cupcakes, Audrey? What's wrong? Your dog is injured. Because, because I have a, a wonderful, beautiful working German shepherd who, who whose knee is basically broken. Oh. And he is very sad and he can't run around. And, and I'm also depressed because the surgery is very expensive. <laughs> all right. Uh, it's too bad it's not covered by Obamacare. Uh, <laughs> all right. Look, we're completely out of time. I wanted to mention the cupcakes again because on a very tough day Sweet. watching the hearings up there, we needed a treat like this. The hearings, I'm sure, are still going on. Now's a good time. We're we're streaming them on the GPB uh, website, so you can uh, switch over there uh, when we're done today. We're going to be back again on Friday. In the meantime, uh, Patricia Murphy, Stacey Evans, Audrey Haynes, and Greg Bluestein. You're coming back on Friday. I'm glad about that, Greg Bluestein. Thank you all for uh, being with us today. See you again on Friday at 2 o'clock. And that show, of course, will also be on TV Friday night at 7. Take care.